Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's going on, Archons? Welcome to yet another episode of Help from Future Self, the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. And I am your Keyforge friends. I go by Boulevard Blake, and I am joined with me, my good Keyforge friend, Essie Steele. What's going on, Sydney? Not much. Things are well over here. Yeah, um, we are coming at you with something that I'm super pumped about. And I've had this idea for probably since the new year. I've been planning this. And originally, this was going to be a YouTube series for me. But since I took on a new job and had more responsibilities and other things in life, I decided that why not bring it as a series we do on Help from Future Self instead. And this is going to be basically kicking off a series of episodes that focuses on this topic, which is re-looking at the Bouncing Death Quark episodes. R.I.P. And kind of, yeah, R.I.P. And kind of seeing if some of those cornerstones and the foundations of competitive Keyforge sort of guidelines or rules, you could even call them, uh, still hold up now that we've gotten a few more sets in because I'm pretty sure it was Worlds Collide was when they started falling off in terms of deciding they had wrapped up what they wanted to do and achieve. I know the majority was taking place during AOA and then it kind of stopped then. So we've had a couple sets since they've stopped and I feel like those sets have actually been very impactful on the way the game is played. Not to just, not to mention also the fact that we as players are now as a collective playing the game differently, I think, than when we were back in the AOA and CODA days. So we decided to kind of just go right to the tippy top and start off with the episode two, which is called what, Sydney? It was called Card Draw. Card Draw. And this is the episode that kind of created the term that I think is very commonly used now, and it definitely is Bouncing Death Quark who, who kind of made this term a thing that we now refer to, which is the Delta, the board plus hand Delta. And this episode really got into the foundations of this concept. And I, I loved it. Like listening back to it in preparation for this, I was quite surprised at how I misremembered the concept to a degree. Interesting. How so? Well, I mean, the basis of it, you know, card plus or board plus hand existed, but when they elaborated on like the nuance of it, like doing certain things, like I, I didn't realize they talked about it in that way. So I was under a different impression, even though I was doing it, I just didn't remember it the way they explicitly stated it. That's what it was. I agree. Like when I first listened to it, I wasn't as into the competitive scene as I I was when that concept meant a lot more to me. And so when I first mm-hmm. listened to it, it was really just like an, an, a cool concept and a way to like a basic way to help make a decision if you you really like had nothing else to go on or were between two options. Whereas like now going back in and listening to the depth at which they talk about it and like the the far flung effects for the future of your game if you mm-hmm. take this into consideration it, it really it really hit home yeah there was something they said which was and for all our listeners this is something i want you to to just pay attention to 
was that if you look at the winner of a game and the person who lost, the discard pile is an indication of potentially who won was their thing. That's what they Mm. said. They said majority of the time, the person who won will have a small deck and a big discard because they've been playing more cards. That was their theory. Um, Obviously, if it's more like evenly matched, that's not necessarily going to be the same thing or you could be in the same boat because you're both playing the same way. But they were saying that if you look, so take note of that. Like as you finish games, kind of see what's happening. Like who, did you play more cards than your opponent? Obviously, if you go through your deck, that should be noted, of course. But I found that just such an interesting sort of thing that I never, ever have paid attention to. And so I kind of want to just to see if if that's a thing. Right. I also, the idea of having a small deck has a lot of nuance to it because you could Mm -hmm. simply have a lot of things on the board. And if your board presence is better or bigger than your opponent's board presence, that could be something that affects how big or small your discard is, but also how small your deck is. And so it's just like, it's just like a a summary of how the whole game went right in in two piles of cards. Totally. And they, they talked about utilizing your board and not necessarily playing cards and went into an in-depth discussion about this. And this was my favorite part of the episode, I think, because I think the board plus hand call a house situation can be lost on people to a degree where you're like, I'm only playing one card, but I have a board, but I want to cycle. But the concept of just being able to generate Ember and get to the end game at such a rapid pace or in such a, a strong like cycle is so strong that you can't overlook like that. Like not even playing cards and just allowing yourself to do it until your board's dealt with. It's it's really powerful. And you can't you can't overlook the fact that you may want to cycle and it's counterintuitive to the idea of playing cards, but it's also so intuitive to just be like, why don't I just gain ember and just keep doing it? Like, why, why, why wouldn't I do that? Right. And I feel like sometimes we don't do that. And instead of utilizing a board, you go, oh, I want to cycle a bit more. And I don't know if that's the correct thing to just cycle in that situation. Like, I feel like you need to spend time generating Ember, especially with some of the newer sets. I mm-hmm. think the Ember generation can be lower, but your board presence can be stronger. And you have to be able to identify that your deck is in that position and take advantage of that board state. For sure. I think a lot of people look at card plus board or, or hand plus board as a, what house should I call because I, mm-hmm. I'm looking at my hand first. And yeah. if you look at it the other way around as board plus hand, because if if you put hand first, you're looking at what, what actions can I play? What, what creatures can I put down? Whereas your board already has ready to go, that inc- could include artifacts, so not just creatures. And mm-hmm. if you have even if the numbers like lean you in one direction over the other, you're still keeping in mind the the way the win the game is reaping and getting amber. So if your board is what is putting you over the edge, that is something to consider, even if you're not getting through your deck faster. Totally. I completely agree. It's also very much one of those things that I don't I don't know how to phrase this exactly. It's it's like you get moments in the game where that decision, though, can can be really detrimental. Mm. 
because of the fact that this is there's there's a part of this that I I find it a really interesting nuance. So the way they speak about it is if you're not really playing the game a ton in terms of with a deck. Like let's say the deck is not like you're not you don't have that intimate knowledge of the deck. Because mm-hmm. I feel once you have an intimate knowledge of a deck, all these rules and everything else that <laughs> exists do not apply anymore because you know how the deck wants to play and all the little like things to aid you within that don't apply anymore like those are while you're getting to know your deck once you know your deck everything changes Mm because they even made like a reference like a loot the bodies okay they they made the specific reference about the card loot the bodies and how early game you're 100 just discarding that where maybe mid to late game you may think about discarding it but at the same time what happens if you hold it and then you like something happens to your board and it's no longer relevant which is like honestly i've i've been on the end of that and it sucks but if there is a situation where you know you can get a, a, a place where you're fighting or board clearing that goes along with it, that is such a strong burst that every time you do it, your win percentage goes up, mm-hmm. you now have to view that card differently. That's totally true. It's interesting to me, too, that their constraints for for examples, but also just the experience that they had were, were such early sets because I really yeah. think that Dark Tidings, bringing in the tide and, and bringing mm-hmm. chains like into the forefront, that affects this so much. The idea totally. that your draw is going to be lower in the future, or even that it's a high probability that your draw is going to be lower. Like you can't even just look at your, your deck and discard pile at the end of the game because you might have to Make your board a bigger part of your strategy earlier on in case your draw gets affected later. Totally. And they also, on that note of like the tide creating the chain factor, uh, there is also the fact that they mentioned specifically in it that chains being taken later in the game are less relevant than early because early it's affecting you moving forward when you're at the end they're not going to have the same effect because you're already at the end unless you're trying to hail mary for a card they don't have the same effect so i think pulling the tide when you're at the end when you have cards like obviously essential sargasa where just (laughs) by pulling the tide you're getting to ember captured or any other those other cards that are really tide heavy at the end it becomes less relevant because it doesn't matter if you get like that one card you have, it's not like three turns later is is where the game is. So if you mm-hmm. take three chains, that doesn't matter. You might as well go up to like six chains. Like actually, right. it, it makes no sense. You, you could even go up to seven. Like you could go way up. It doesn't matter at that point the same way as it would earlier. Like because it's the, the length of time that exists for those chains to still be relevant is suddenly become way shorter. They were probably, you know, focusing on the fact that in adaptive, you get a lot of chains right when you start, but like they're foreshadowing because in what way there was no actual way like to get so many chains so late in the game at that point in time. And so the, the fact that that's something that's relevant now is, is huge props to them. Yeah, totally. Um, what other things did you find really interesting about the discussion, Sydney? I just really like the fact that there was there was a lot of discussion about thinking things through. You know, like mm-hmm. the the fact that you should consider the situation you're in at, at all different points of the game, and it's not just it's not an automatic every single time. So every turn that you have, you actually have to make this mental decision whether you're going to go with one house over another versus uh, whether you have the cards in your hand or the board because 
it's something that after a while I will go on to default if if I'm not like actually just thinking about my end game or the next step I'm trying to make or the amount of amber that I need to get. Like if I'm not using my brain, I will very easily just default to card plus board for every single turn, like over and over again. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, I'm when I don't know what house to call, I generally don't use this formula. My formula is cards played versus and hand. So I go, I go, what has been used plus hand to figure out how I can craft the following turn to be stronger. Like I'm, I'm accepting, I'm going to take an L on this turn with the anticipation of having a stronger subsequent two or three turns to follow. So I'll, I'll look at what have I played the most of so far? Let's call that again. And that way I'm playing less, but the idea is hopefully what exists in my hand currently will get boosted. And then I'm going to have a strong following afterwards. That mathematically makes a ton and, of sense. Yeah. I've gotten really into like counting that sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just this thing that I'm, I'm obsessed with doing it. Like I, I have to like know everything I've played and I count like constantly now. And oh, I should take I you actually, to Vegas. <laughs> oh, I, I love it. It's, it's such a, it's, it's very satisfying when it happens. And when the odds are defied and you just get the same thing again, you're like, are you kidding me? And in which case I'll just call <laughs> the same house again. And, and cause then my odds should be going in my favor at this point. But I also liked how they were speaking also about how establishing that big board until it's dealt with and you're just reaping, and that leaves you with a hand potentially. Like even though you have a hand maybe of like five cards of one house, mm-hmm. but you have this board, allowing yourself to keep calling the board because you know as soon as that's dealt with, you're gonna throw out another five cards. Like that that part of the discussion I found the most exhilarating to think about like I was like oh my goodness because I think when you get in a position sometimes where you have five cards of one house your your actual instinct is to just let's go bigger and then you you want to put more down but I I think that I want to start checking myself in those moments and actually allow myself to just hold this five card hand because I know I'm going to cycle it later and take advantage of what currently exists and especially with dark tidings Mm -hmm. I think you can reap a ton of benefits from having that mentality of allowing yourself to just hold five cards of one house and take advantage of what you got going on currently in front of you. Yeah. Back when they created this podcast, things like Gateway to Dis or Control the Week were super, super prevalent because Mm -hmm. in in Coda, those were hard hitters to to wipe out your ability to play your board, whether it's by killing everything on your board or letting you pick those houses. So sitting on a hand that was going to be super... um, just efficient or or just a really good hand was absolutely worth doing at the time. And I think that Dark Tidings is an interesting situation because that that set specifically has a ton of creature or board manipulation. And so having a big board is is always better than not having, I guess not even always, but usually better than having a smaller board. But there are ways where that could actually backfire. Like I think it's Maelstrom um, that puts them all back on top of your deck. And so you're drawing the same cards for days. And that's, it's, it's something where that beats the calculation over the head with the inability to, to, to just do cards plus board. Yeah, I totally agree. I I think you're you're totally right. And that being said, I think Maelstrom is one of the most skill testing cards in Keyforge. 
because mm-hmm. it is technically a board control. It's also control control because right. you're stopping your opponent from cycling, but it's also going to affect you. So it has a very like almost nuanced situation of when you should play it because there's some times when it actually is going to be incredible and other times when it's going to absolutely hurt you. I'm still trying to find the Maelstrom deck where it's it's a deck that has a ton of creatures with playabilities <laughs> so that you, when you do it to yourself, you're going to get to reutilize those. But I, I find it, it is a, a very interesting card that if you are ever in doubt, like you're ever questioning, you should just discard it. It's like, I think it's that detrimental of how it can hurt you. Same with reverse time. Mm-hmm. I think reverse time falls into that as well. They they mentioned that card as well about being able to actually pull your discard back and have some wild turns. I think reverse time now showing up, I believe it came back in mass mutations. It was in that set, it can actually extremely hurt you. It is not like the Coda days where right. where it was so much stronger because of the card pool being so strong. But when you have these vanilla creatures that are putting pips out there, that card suddenly hits differently in a not a good way. Right. And I also think um, for for Maelstrom, at least, the the getting two chains while putting having to put whatever creatures you have back on top of your own deck, it's it's almost a, a like an automatic discard for me. I just can't I can't see yeah. the benefit of that. Whereas I don't the, think it needed chains. Oh, I agree. And the the opposite for me is true for reverse time because it comes with a, a pip. It's yep. um, unless I'm digging for specific cards, I will usually play it because the amount of times that me drawing what I've already played is bad is is usually very low. Simply because if I've played it, it probably benefited me. I'm not usually discarding cards just to get them out of my hand, but I guess I, I have done that in the past. But reverse time is is still something that I think they were right about. Yeah. Totally, yeah. But I, I think Maelstrom could have done with just a single chain. It was two chains is is so unnecessary because it is affecting you. I mean, obviously if it's a one sided thing and you don't really have a board yet, it is right. obviously coming up tops for you and, and it is a hundred percent a play card at that point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I totally I'm totally with you. I, I'm even like thinking right now, like if if there's a way you can I, my brain just went into this like, oh, I wonder sort of moment talking about this. <laughs> it's like if you could play a general Sherman to get your own stuff and then, and then you, so you have all your stuff under general Sherman and then you allows your opponent to then play something and then you maelstrom. So it puts all their creatures on top, puts your general Sherman on top and then puts a bunch of your creatures back out onto the board. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that would be kind of a a fun little combo wombo to try and play. I'm going to look for it now. I'm, I'm literally that's super you fun. Just, I just have a mission now. And then <laughs> well, you get the General Sherman back to play against your opponent too. So <laughs> that's got true. got that double whammy. Yeah. I think something that they they really didn't have much to consider at the time were combos like that. Because there were there were obviously combos, but like some of the some of the ways that that mass mutation and dark tidings brought combinations into the game where they just simply weren't as complicated in the past. And there are more pieces to puzzles that you need to consider in your deck than there were before. So if you're looking mm. you're looking for a certain card, you you really do need to consider that as like a a third like like card or hand plus board plus like 
card that I need versus like <laughs> if I need something that I, I it's worth the amber that I'm not reaping for, I'm I'm going to just use the house that gets the most cards out of my hand. Totally. Yeah. I mean, when you need a card, it it changes everything. Like whatever you're looking for, like if there's a card that's an answer, and I guess that's the other thing too, if if you're going to chain yourself if there's a card that's an answer to a problem that exists and it doesn't matter about, you know, whether you're calling the house or not, or if it's whatever, whatever it is, if there's a card that's a direct answer to something that will counter what you want to do, then all bets are off. You're throwing everything out the window. But again, that's that's because you have the intimacy of your deck. So once you intimately know your deck, all rules no longer apply and you play the deck the way it needs to play to win and executes the game strategy that it wants to. Everything mm-hmm. else you know about it becomes irrelevant. Like holding a key charge from turn one because yeah. you know you're going to get to a point where you will win the game with this card. You do it. Same thing mm-hmm. with like a board clear. You know you can clear the board. Like I have, I have one that's... Um, it's like it's the loot the bodies, but it's got multiple loot the bodies, and I think a champion's challenge. Like I will hold those and just wait until all those come together because the benefit you can have from that is so great of a burst that it can put the game just completely out of reach for your opponent. And I think you just got to be aware of that sometimes and do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I completely agree. We cannot end an episode without the titular segment. We call this one. Help from future self. Sydney, I understand you have some sage advice for all players out there. And what is that? So one of the ways that I like to play Keyforge casually is when you're playing your opponent and you see them not do something that they could otherwise do. And I'm not talking about a choice that they can make or something that's required because if it's required to keep the game state correct, you you need to let them know that they have to do it. But I'm saying something like leaving a creature unreaped or just simply not using the effect on an artifact that they could otherwise use. It's in your benefit, especially if it's a casual game, to tell the other person that they they miss this thing, to, to help your opponent to play the play to their best. Because one, it makes you a better player if you are against someone at their best, but also it's it's a way for both of you to learn, and especially if your opponent is is new at the game. And I, I think it's it's more like a fun way to just make sure you're paying attention to the whole board and keeping everything in mind. And it also just I really like it because. I don't like it bugging me later that they didn't do that thing. And if it like had a big effect at the end of the game that they had, they had that one more Amber, blah, blah, blah. They, they could have court uh, forged and everything would have been different. And I, I think that helping your opponent play to their best is something that is absolutely worth doing in casual. I completely agree with you. I think it's a, a great little way of remembering that, let your competitive bone go, okay? Just let it go and, and <laughs> allow for the learning to go. It, it's it's going to make you a better player. It's going to let you see what a deck can really do or not do because that win almost is tainted by not seeing it ultimately competed against. Mm-hmm. So you can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast or join our Discord where there is tons of amazing conversations going on every day. And uh, you can find me at uh, Discord as well, Boulevard Blake, number sign 3840. That's BLVD Blake, number sign 3840. Got some uh, a new content series starting this week. And uh, Sydney, where can folks find you? 
I am on Discord and TCO as SC Steel. Perfect. So we'll be at you next week with another iteration of Help from Future Self revisiting the Bouncing Death Quark sage rules and advice that we have all grown to love and seeing how they are relevant in today's game. But until then, folks, stay fortunate.